Well, hello again and welcome to the 11th and the last Bible study about our Lord's return. And each of these has only been scratching at the surface of what the Bible says. When we began, we likened the subject of Jesus' return, especially the prophecies about his return, to a jigsaw puzzle, where a whole section of the puzzle is missing. And people find they can put the other pieces together in a different way. Or again, we, we likened these prophecies to a dot-to-dot -dot exercise on a piece of paper with 300 dots, but none of them have a number. And people can put those dots together and create different pictures from the same dots. And it's a bit like that with this doctrine, that people come to the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus and they shape it together in slightly different ways. Which is why I've been giving you some choices why we've been studying this subject. When we started, I think we, we agreed that we will not treat the Bible like Old Moore's Almanac <coughs> or like the prophecies of Nostradamus. And I agreed not to come to you with a timeline in my mind or to end up with a timeline at the end of the series either. There are as many timelines as there are students of this subject. We began by looking at the Old Testament jigsaw pieces. And then we looked at the New Testament jigsaw pieces, particularly the ones Jesus gave us from his Sermon on the Mount of Olives. Then we considered the four horsemen of the Apocalypse, the Antichrists, the Beasts, Armageddon, the Final Judgment, the Thousand Years, and then the Day of the King's Return. At last, we've come to heaven. Heaven at last. If it's possible for you to have your Bible open at Revelation chapter 21, that would be helpful, but not absolutely essential. I'm not talking here about the paradise in which believers are now. When believers die, their spirit goes immediately to be with Jesus in paradise, sometimes called heaven. It's an intermediate state. I'm talking today about the heaven which will be at the very end of everything when God recreates the heaven and the earth. And we read about that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now this idea of there being a new heaven and a new earth was first prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And Peter, in his lesson, letter, second letter, wrote quite a lot about this. He wrote this. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. 
since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now, again, I'm going to have to give you a choice. There are two ways of understanding these prophecies. The first way is to accept the fact that this universe that God created and which was very good has been irredeemably ruined by sin and that the redemption, sorry, that the rebellion of human beings has so damaged this universe that God will have to get rid of it and start again with a brand new one. That's one way of looking at it. I remember when I was first taught about the second coming, I was told that this passage in Peter described a nuclear conflict. I was told that the nations of the world were going to blow the world to pieces with nuclear bombs, and that is what it says here. The day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is to compare this new heavens and new earth to the new resurrected body of Jesus. Remember, when Jesus was raised from the dead, God didn't destroy his old earthly body. He didn't have it consumed by fire or allow it to rot away. God transformed that earthly body into the resurrected body. And others believe that this is what these prophecies mean, that God will take the old creation, which he was very good when it was first made, and God would cleanse it and restore it and renew it and turn it into something new and wonderful in which righteousness dwells, where everything will be right. Reading on then. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. What's gone wrong with John's eyes? Does he need an eye test? He says he looked for a holy city and he saw a holy bride. He looked for a building and he saw a woman. Taken completely by surprise. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He is more taken by the building than he is by the bride. The bride is there to symbolise the church in her beauty and in her purity when Jesus re returns. But the building is there to remind us of the new Jerusalem. And God will be with humans, and humans will be with God in that new creation. All this earth's sinful imperfections will be removed. Let me read to verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. 
those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. There will be nothing damaging there. There will be no imperfections there. All the imperfections of this life that get us down so much, they will be eliminated. The new heaven and the new earth will be perfect. And there will be nothing sinful there. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. And the last verse of the chapter says, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This wonderful, beautiful, glorious new environment will not be damaged by sin or by sinners. And those who have not accepted Christ, they are thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. The first death is when you die naturally in this life and your body is cremated or buried. The second death is when you appear before the judgment seat of Christ and he says, I never knew you. Solemn, solemn words. But those whose names are written in the book of life, they are given admission into this city. They are a part of this bride. Now in verses 9 and 10, again, the angel offers to show John a bride and John sees something completely different. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This time he thinks he's going to see a woman, and he doesn't. He sees a city. And John writes more about this city than he does about this woman. He firstly tells us the city will be wonderfully safe. Verse 11. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This heavenly city will be so safe, it will have a high wall, so high that no one can climb over it and so thick that no one would be able to break through it. As we'll see in a moment, it will be 65 kilometres thick, the length of three cricket wickets for those of you thinking cricketing terms. No one will break into this city, no one will break through the walls into this city. It will be completely safe and its gates are guarded by angels. So no one can break in, no one can break through. And the foundations of the city are the 12 apostles and so it's unshakable. No earthquake will damage this city because its foundations are unshakable. And then the city will be wonderfully holy. Verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. 
the angel measured the wall using human measurements and it was 144 cubits thick. So this city will be wonderfully holy. 12,000 stadia cube. Now, one stadia, sorry, 12,000 stadia is 1,400 miles in three directions. 1,400 miles in that direction, 1,400 miles in that direction, and 1,400 miles in that direction. It's a cube. It's the distance from London to Athens. It's the area of the size of Greenland. Now, for those of you who are still reading the book of Revelation literally, <laughs> you must believe that the heaven you're going to is a cube. But I suggest there's a symbolic meaning to this. What would a cube mean to readers of the Old Testament? And their minds will go back to the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, firstly in the tabernacle, the tent that Moses built, and then lastly in the temple which Solomon built. The most holy place in those places of worship was the, holy, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. It was a 15-foot cube. 15 foot in each direction. And that was the locus of God on earth. Any Jew who wanted to get close to God would come to Jerusalem or wherever the tent was pitched and try to get as close as they possibly could to the Holy of Holies, to that cube, because that's where God was on earth. Now, of course, we know that God is in Jesus on earth. But then, God's place on earth was in the Holy of Holies. And so what Revelation is saying here is that this city will be the holiest of places. The very presence of God will be there, wonderfully holy. And there's room in it for everyone whose name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. Not only holy, it will be wonderfully beautiful. Look at verse 18. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl, the great, city of the, the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. It describes the amazing beauty of this place. Its wealth, its opulence, outreaching anything that ever, has ever been seen on this earth, however wealthy some people have been. This is breathtaking glory, breathtaking wealth, breathtaking magnificence. You may have heard the fictitious story of the traveller, the dead traveller who'd come to the pearly gate and asked to be let in with a suitcase. And the angel on the gate said, what's in the suitcase? And he said, well, it's, it's gold. It's a, just a slab of gold. And the angel said, you want to bring pavement in here? That city will be so wonderfully wealthy and beautiful and opulent. And now we'll see that there's one thing the city did not have. Verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, 
because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's going to be everything there we could possibly need, except one thing. No place of worship. No temple. No synagogue. No chapel. No church buildings. Why not? Because in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies is where God is. Now, in the new heaven and earth, that is where God is. We'll worship God and not need to go to a place because God will be there. He'll be with us and we'll be with him. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And it doesn't need any heavenly lights or artificial lights because the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. So there will be no sea. We read that in verse 1. There'll be no sun, we read that in verse 23, and the gospel tell us there will be no sexual relations either. So no sea, no sun, no sex, it's not exactly like a European's ideal holiday, is it? Entirely different. A new creation, a new earth, a new heaven, a new environment in which to live. It will shine with the glory of God. And on no day would its gates ever be shut, verse 25. City gates in those days were always shut at night to keep out dangers, to keep out the enemy, to keep out burglars, to keep out wild animals, to keep out the, the undesirable. But these gates will be constantly open because there will be no dangers there. There will be no night there. No temple, no sun, no night. Light all the time and no dangers from outside the city. This is most amazing. There'll be no sin there, even though there'll be thousands of sinners there, because the sinners will have been totally transformed and have done with sin forever. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life are there. T'was grace that wrote your name in life's eternal book. T'was grace that gave you to the Lamb who all your sorrows took. Saved by grace alone, this is all my plea. Jesus died for all mankind, and Jesus died for me. The only occupants of this city are God and the resurrected church, whose names are written in that special book. And going into chapter 21, we find there is no hunger and no illness in this city. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Earthly cities, especially in those days, ran out of water, they ran out of food, they ran out of health, plagues and infections spread. But in this new Jerusalem, everything will be provided. There'll be no shortage of water, there'll be no shortage of food, there'll be no shortage of health. 
because all those nasty things do not belong in this new city. And God's servants will be there. The second half of verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And when John uses the word serve there, it's not the usual word for serve, like a slave serves its master. It's more the word serve in the way that a priest would serve in the tabernacle or in the temple. It's the word Paul uses in Romans 12 verse 1. Offer your bodies as living sacrifice. This is your true and proper service or worship. It can be translated either way. So in this wonderful city, we are going to be serving God with worship and with praise and working for him too. In that city, we are going to be busy, busy, busy. It says on the epitaphs, doesn't it? Rest in peace. No, we're not going to be resting, lying back on couches, doing nothing all day and every day and right through the day and the night as well. We're going to be really busy. It says in chapter 22, verse 5, they will reign forever and ever. 1 Corinthians 6, the saints will judge the world. We will judge the angels. Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant. I will put you in charge of many things. And in another parable, he said, well done, my good servant. Because you have trusted, been trustworthy in very small matters, take charge of ten cities. We won't be bored. We won't be inactive. We won't be resting in peace. We'll be busy doing what Christ wants us to do. It will be like the Garden of Eden restored. So we've gone from a bride to a city to a cube to a garden. All these different images are being used to describe this wonderful heaven which John can see. Theologians call this new recreated heavens and earth, the final state or the eternal state, and that is where we will spend eternity. And he runs out of words. He runs out of adjectives to describe how wonderful this place will be. He describes a bride. He describes a city. He describes an enormous cubic box. He describes a garden. I want you to imagine two dogs living in a farmhouse. A bit chilly downstairs with the, the, the stone floor and, and the doors which are rather drafty. But they're not allowed upstairs. But one day there's a horrible storm and the lightning and the thunder are cracking and the owners let these two dogs up the stairs and they scurry up the stairs to a new environment. There are beautiful carpets on the floor. There are no drafts up here. There are beds to leap on and easy chairs to go to sleep on. It's a wholly different environment which they'd never imagined before. And that's how it will be for us. And John is struggling here to describe how lovely and wonderful this environment will be. Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Heaven will be more different than we could possibly imagine. It will be more holy than we could possibly imagine. It will be more beautiful, it will be more safe, it will be more busy than we could possibly imagine. And so we bring... Revelation chapter 21 to a close. May I just end 
by a little word of warning. Beware of second coming enthusiasts. Beware of second coming hobbyists. People who find it's a doctrine which preoccupies their mind and they spend all their time studying it. Beware of those who will deliver you with a timetable telling you exactly when everything is going to happen and in what order. I don't think we're meant to know when Jesus will return and I don't think we're meant to know what will precede it. That is why Bible scholars of equal eminence and equal faith come to different understandings of this great doctrine. There are some things which have not been revealed and we're not meant to know. So don't be adamant about this doctrine except in three ways. Be adamant that Jesus will return. Be adamant that we do not know when and we shouldn't make guesses. And be adamant that we should be getting ready for his return by living holy lives and building his kingdom. Could Jesus come in 2023? He'd be a foolish person who said no. He'd be a foolish person who would say yes, it will happen. We wait until the Lord returns in his own good time. Let me close with the wonderful Phil Wickham's Hymn of Heaven. How I long to breathe the air of heaven, where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets. To look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him for all eternity. And on that day we join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith. With one voice a thousand generations sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain, forever he shall reign. So let it be today we shout the hymn of heaven, with angels and the saints we raise a mighty roar. Glory to our God, who gave us life beyond the grave. Holy, holy is the Lord. Holy, holy is the Lord. May God bless you and keep you until that day when Jesus returns for you and takes you into the new heaven and the new earth. Thank you for watching. Amen.